Hello to those who are doing this Bible study with me on 1 John. We're ready for episode 5, which is going to be 1 John chapter 3, starting with verse 11 through the end of the chapter. If you're just jumping in, you can start here or you can go back to the beginning and start with the first chapter. You can find these on the podcast Zone Logo, spelled Z-O-N-L-O-G-O-S, which stands for Living Word. And I'm the person taking you through this. I'm Amy Clarkson. I'm reading from the NIV translation, but feel free to read in whatever version you prefer. And as always, I love it when you guys give feedback and comments. I've enjoyed hearing from you. As a good intro to what this chapter is about, and specifically this passage, I'm going to read verse 11, which is the summation of all of this. Verse 11 says this, This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another, period. You would think with such a clear sentence that we wouldn't need all of these books of the Bible, basically saying the same thing over and over again. And yet, as humans, we seem to need reminding. And so John's going to do his best to say this in many, many ways. Look at verse 12. It says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, to fully understand what he's saying, we need to review the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis. If you have your Bibles, jump back to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to read from the second half of verse 2 onwards. It says this, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. I want to stop right here. When I was younger, I couldn't understand why God was so angry at Abel. In my mind, as a child, I remember thinking, what, God just didn't like the fruit? He only likes meat? Uh, I didn't know there were such requirements. But as I've matured and looked and understood the story, I realized that it's not about fruit versus meat. It's about the portion of what we give God. If you notice, Cain brought some of the fruits. It could have been spoiled. It could have been eh, so-so. It was an afterthought. Some of the fruits I'll give some of these leftovers here to God. Whereas Abel brought the fat portions, that's the best part, of the firstborn of his flock. So the best of the best. And that's what God was upset about. And God rightly kind of got angry. So how does Cain react? I'm going to read from Genesis verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel 
and killed him. In this somber retelling, we have to realize why John is bringing this story up. In verse 12, now back into chapter 3 of 1 John, he says, Do not be like Cain. Now, what specifically is wrong with Cain? What was it about his actions that were not to emulate? Well, of course, we're not to murder our brother, but the murder came after a different emotion that Cain felt, which was anger, and that anger towards his brother was because why? Because he was jealous, right? Because God had favored Abel over himself. So what John is saying is, yes, don't murder, but he's going back further. Don't hate your brother. Don't be angry at your brother. In fact, don't be jealous of your brother. Just do what is right. It's important to establish right here at the beginning that what John is talking about is our internal motivations. It's not always our behavior, but what is going on on the inside. And for Cain, it wasn't just the action of murder. It was what was going on on his inside, even before it was directed towards his brother. It was directed towards God, right? Okay, let's see what else he has to say. In verse 13, John says, Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. Now, this is coming right off of the story about Cain and Abel. It's also in reference to what we are called to do, which is love one another. The link here is don't be surprised if the world hates you because you're loving your brother. Now, I have a question for you. Would you say that the world hates Christians? Would you say that you've seen examples of people hating the Christian faith? Any maybe news outlet media renditions of this, maybe community or social media representations of a type of hatred towards Christians. My question is, is that hatred directed towards the Christians because of their great love? Are they loving so well and so abundantly that the world can't stand it? Because that would be the goal. Now, to be honest, I have not seen examples of hatred being directed towards Christians because of how generously and abundantly we love those in need or love our enemies or love even our neighbors. But that is the goal. That's what we're talking about here. Let's go to verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. This is at least the second time that John has used this imagery of passing. In this one, he's talking about passing from death to life. Passing meaning departing or changing place. He used the same phrase back in chapter 2 when in verse 8 he says the darkness is passing 
and the true light is already shining. So for him, as he's even writing this, he's aware that there's this transition taking place. Uh, there's a transition in our own lives, personally, that takes place, but also culturally and religiously. So this movement from death to life, in his mind, has everything to do with love. So you're either loving your brother or you're not loving your brother. And uh, if you're not loving your brother or your neighbor, he says you remain in death. That's that same word that we've talked about in other podcasts over First John, which is meno in Greek, which is abides. It's that idea of taking up residence. So in other words, death takes up residence in you. Darkness takes up residence in you when you're not loving. Now he goes even further here in verse 15. He says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Now, this is a pretty bold statement, I think. Let's think for a moment how this could even be true. How does having hate for someone rank on the same scale as murder? Well, for one, usually when we hate somebody, we're wishing for their own destruction, right? Whether that's physically or uh, emotionally or mentally or spiritually. Now, of course, we might not be saying this, but that's what our internal posture when we hate somebody is geared towards. And so I think what John is saying is that's not any different. If in your mind you're wishing for destruction, isn't that the same as murder itself? I think one of the reasons we have a hard time with this is because we get so focused on outward actions and behaviors. We do this even with God's love. We think that our actions or our behaviors influences how much God loves us. We also tend to think then that our behaviors and actions in the opposite way somehow affect God's love for us. But John is reiterating something that is all over the New Testament, that again, it's our internal posture that matters to God more than our external actions and behaviors. Yes, external actions and behaviors usually follow our internal nature, but it's our motives that God cares about. It's our heart that God cares about. It's what we're trying on the inside to do that God cares about. And that's why hatred, which is an internal feeling, is just as dangerous, John's saying, as murder. Because in God's eyes, it's our internal that really counts. If there was still some confusion for us as we were reading this at that time or even now, he's going to explain a little bit more of what it means to love one another, since that was his opening line in verse 11. So in verse 16, he says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. I, for one, am glad that John is being specific. Love is a very nebulous term, just like hate is. And so when we're commanded over and over again to love one another, love God, love one another, it's important to then ask, what does that look like? What does that mean? And he's very specifically letting us know. First, he's giving us an example. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, very literally, Christ gave his life for us. I think it's important to never forget that. But not just physically, his action was one of internal laying down as well. Letting go of his will, right? Because when I read that next part that says, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, I would ask you, does that mean we need to go literally die for our brothers? Do I need to go out there and um, allow death to overtake me? Will that be what love is for my brothers? Well, let's look at these words a little more in depth in the Greek. First of all, to lay down something is from the Greek word tithemi, T-I-T-H-E-M-I. And it means to place, to set aside, as well as bend down or bow. So there's humility in this laying something down. Second word we need to look at is our lives. This word in the Greek is translated as suke, P-S-U. C-H-E. It's actually the same for our Latin word psychology or psyche. It comes from that root. And it means and is translated usually as soul or spirit in the Bible. There's another word we use for actual physical life. That is zoe. That's in the Greek. That is not used here. So when we look at this a little bit more in depth about laying down our lives for our brothers... I would propose that while it may at some point be in death, really what he is saying love is, is setting aside our soul or our will or our selves, everything that I am going for, because that's where my soul directs me. That's my inwardness. If I lay that aside for somebody else, that is what love is. That is the ultimate laying down. Now, John's going to get even more specific here to express this idea. Verse 17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? This is pretty clear. If we have anything... This says material possessions, but in the Greek, it says the world's goods or kosmu bios, which really is translated bios as living or life. So if we're alive or living, literally, and we see or notice someone in need, and then what John says is, have no pity on him. This in the Greek is to close your splanknon. The Greek word for pity is that phrase. A splanknon comes from the word that means gut or gut level compassion. In other words, if we close off that emotional reaction, that gut level concern and we do that ourselves like we feel it and we shut it down 
he's saying, how can the love of God be in him? I would caution you from a legalistic reading of this. This doesn't mean if I've ever walked by somebody that had a need or was asking for money and I didn't do anything. Does that mean that God's love is not in me? I think we have to trust God and the Holy Spirit to give us discernment. And again, John is so good to say it's when we internally know better, when internally we're being asked to do something, our gut is reacting and saying, be active, take care of this need. And when we shut that off, that's when we're doing something that is harmful. Now, I want to move on here to verse 18 that says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. I think you could pair that verse with the opening verse about loving one another just to simplify everything. How many times I have been guilty of voicing love and compassion without having deeds or actions to match that. And I need to always remember that it's not just talking the talk, right? Let's look at verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. There are two things here that John's saying. When we act with love, because this is following that verse about the action, when we're actually doing the deeds of love, when we're taking care of our brothers and our neighbors, then two things happen. One, we know we're living in the truth and in reality. And then second, I love how the NIV says this, how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Other versions might say we assure our heart in his presence. The word used for heart here is cardia in the Greek, K-A-R-D-I-A. Does that sound like cardiac to you, where we get that word? And it, in the Greek time, meant the center of our being or our character. I also think of it as our conscience, and that will become clear in the next few verses. But that part of us can be confident or assured. It comes from the word pitho, which we use for faith, So, and faith is to be persuaded. So that's the kind of confidence we can have when we act in love. Now, verse 20 follows this. So we can rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. That little tag at the end is insinuating that at times our conscience, that part of our heart, can condemn us. And the word for condemn here in the Greek is kartagnosko, which really means to charge us as guilty or to find fault with. So what he's saying is sometimes our conscious is trying to find fault, to nitpick us. Maybe he's overly active and condemning us. But he's actually saying we can be reassured within ourselves if we're acting in love that we are okay that we can find that rest that NIV talks about in God's presence. 20 goes on to say, For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Meaning, God knows more even than our own conscience and our own thoughts. So we have to rest in the truth of what God knows in terms of our inner selves and our actions
because sometimes we can be too hard on ourselves. And so that's a message to some of you who find it easy to find fault within yourself. Trust that when you're acting in love and your motives are good, grace abounds. And sometimes you have to tell that part of you to be quiet. Let's finish up here. Verse 21 says, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Okay, the first part of this is the same. If our hearts, that conscious character, inner self, doesn't condemn us, doesn't find us guilty or find fault, we have confidence before God. Now, here's what's interesting. This is a different word. Confidence in the Greek here is parousia, and that is different from the one that we just used above that was assurance or faith or to be persuaded. This is the kind of confidence that's a bold resolve and openness or freedom. I like that visual. It's one thing to know what you know, that kind of confidence. And there's another type of confidence that gives you the freedom to act as you are, as who you are in front of God. And that's what John is saying when we have that inside of us. He says we receive from him anything we ask. And that really is a generous statement. He is saying uh, the word for ask means to crave, desire, call for, and that word to receive means to get or take hold of. I always want to stress that when receive is used in the Bible here, there's an action on our part that we actually have to go get it. So when it says that we have the freedom to ask and then God gives us, there's also a part that we have to actually go and take it as well. And why? It's because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And what's his command? The biggest one, loving one another. And this last little part that says, and do what pleases him. Pleasing is, uh, comes from the word agreeable in the Greek and from the word I serve. I love that. Um, it's showing those actions again in service to others. And that's what is agreeable to God. And finally, verse 23, and this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. None of these last two sentences should be new to us. He's restating all of his common themes. But it's simple again. What do we do? We need to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and loving one another. And you need both. I think that's always important. It's not just about loving one another. It's about also believing in Jesus Christ. And... I love the visual of verse 24 that not only does he live in us, but we live in him. It's a circular, we in him and him in us. And we know that because of the Holy Spirit. That goes back to what he said in chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, 
but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. He talks in that chapter about the Holy Spirit's job is to convince us of these things, to teach us these things, to remind us of the things that we know deep down. And one of the things the Holy Spirit is called to do is to remind us that we are in him and he is in us. I will end with that if there is something you find hard believing that is truth, either that um, you are in him or that uh, any kind of truth that you have a hard time really believing in the depths like that you are worthy of God's love, that nothing you can do can ever change how much he loves you. If there's things you struggle with, ask the Holy Spirit to cement those into your core because that's what his job is. Well, again, I've really enjoyed my time. I love getting into the word and I'd love to hear from you. Any thoughts that you have? Otherwise, we'll be back next week to start with chapter four.